0: You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Amen. If you are able and uh, willing, would you stand for the reading of God's word? When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. One of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." This is the word of the Lord. Y- y'all were just brilliant. I have reader up there twice. Uh, reader. Uh, no, I, I guess we're good. But anyway, I, I, you're brilliant anyway. Good job. All right. Uh, so let's, let's uh, just uh, segue from that brilliant intro to, to something of just substance, right? Uh, we're talking uh, world peace, perfect world, a utopia. You up for that? There's, there's something within all of us that somehow longs for things to be better than they are. That's universal. It's not limited to us in this era. It's always been, right? Why is that? I, I think at its core, Scripture probably hits it when it says God has put eternity in our hearts. We've got a longing for something greater than this world itself is capable of providing. So let me just ask you, in light of your desires for this world, what would you like to see? World peace? How about a green earth? Would you like to see economic or racial equality? What is it that stirs your longings for this world. I would guarantee, well, let's just say some of you would say, I don't know about any of that. I just, I want a smaller government. I want to be left alone. Uh, One thing I can guarantee, whatever your answers to those questions are, we've all maybe got different answers to what the solutions are, or maybe even uh, as our identity of what the problems are <laughs> we come up with different ideas. We're, we're going to be mixed in how we think about those. But the one thing we're not mixed on is that things aren't as they ought to be. And truthfully, at the end of the day, at the end of a news cycle, that can be a little frustrating. Do you ever get overwhelmed <laughs> just by how things are and this sense of will it ever be fixed? What I want you to do this morning is to take heart as realizing that in all of us, that longing, it stems back to something that we're so prone to forget about, the curse. The curse that is on this earth means that everything isn't as it ought to be. There's a, a right longing we have for that to be resolved. And here again, what we're going to find is that in His perfect wisdom, God's got a plan. But this, 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 recognition of our country's political woes, or even this world's political failings. It's all tied up kind of with this recognition of another opportunity to trust God. All right? And so I want us to dive uh, deeper into that idea this morning. But as we do, I'll remind you, where are we at? We're, We're in a series the last few weeks called The Promise, right? And what we've been looking at, uh, just as a a little review, hey, over the last few weeks, it's been pretty clear. We've touched on how from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when everything was perfect, there was a call for Adam and Eve to trust God. When they didn't, hey, that was more than a simple slip-up, right? If your parents, you know, sometimes your kids do things that they and I say, oh, they're just kids. That's what they this isn't one of those moments. This is a profound and defiant proclamation. God, we don't trust you. And from now on, our trust is in us. That's what's going on at the fall of man. We looked, though, last week, or the last couple of weeks, uh, we looked at Abraham. Abraham came a few hundred years after Adam and Eve, and this is kind of profound because even though there was the curse placed on the earth in the garden, uh, we said that there was that message of hope, that promise that a son, a descendant of Adam and Eve would one day come to crush the serpent's head or in effect lift or reverse the curse on this earth. That's good news. But it would take several hundred years till that promise was picked up and advanced Uh, a little more fully in a man named Abraham. And we said that God had made a promise that really connects to that first promise, to Abraham. And that promise is pretty huge because in it, Abraham receives the hope that the relationship that had been lost between God and man will be restored. And it won't be based on human effort. It will be based on God's kindness His grace, His mercy. But we saw more than that. Abraham would become a great nation, even though he had no children. And that great nation would someday someday become like the the conduit, the, the, the vessel through which God would bless all the nations of the earth. We moved a few hundred years later last week when we looked at Moses. And Moses, another promise was made to him. And that promise was that Israel would become a prized possession of God. And more importantly, that Israel would serve as priests, holy priests of the living God to the rest of the world. They would shine something of the light of who God is into the darkness that has gripped this world. So something about how God would operate and bless this world would become more evident through Israel. So what I've been trying to do the last few weeks is connect the dots and see that these promises are really connected. They're they're interrelated to this larger promise made to Adam and Eve. And we're gonna jump in this morning to yet another promise. And that promise is gonna be made to David. And the promise, uh, David, many of you know David from the Bible. Even if you don't remember all the details, you, you may very likely remember something of a story of uh, a shepherd boy defeating uh, just this giant of a man, a Philistine named Goliath. Most people have heard of that. If you haven't, uh, it's a pretty uh, you know, epic story. But really, what we'll look at, uh, we'll take a few more snapshots from David than just his defeat of Goliath. All right? and so what we can Say about David is that David is going to be uh, the one that, that God will use to take the throne. He'll be the second king in Israel's history. The first king, Saul, had been a rather less than perfect king. In fact, he was all appearance and no substance. This second king, David, though, would take the throne, he would be completely different he would be not impulsive, not in it for himself. In fact, some of that's demonstrated through his life as he would wait on God for the proper time to become king. And over the last couple of weeks, I've mentioned before that the temptation we all face to connect the dots for God, when we know that he's got something in store, we see the end, And we kind of like substitute our own path for getting there. David didn't do that. David waited for God. He didn't take the kingdom by force. He waited for the opportunity even as he was being hounded in the wilderness by Saul relentlessly. He'll wait for God. And in it, he demonstrates a heart of worship as well. So a lot of good things going on. Eventually, he will take the throne. Eventually, he will become a mighty uh, you know, military leader. Just numerous enemies of Israel will be defeated. Uh, Israel will begin to... De- uh, enjoy a period of prosperity and peace uh, pretty awesome Um, and so all of these are good things but we'd be amiss if we didn't mention some of the dark spots here in david's snapshot history as well and one of those dark spots uh, undeniably is going to be his sin with Bathsheba. he will take a woman who is not his wife there will be an adulterous relationship and if it's not enough He'll even unscrupulously murder her husband after it is found that Bathsheba is pregnant with David's child. This is not a very good moment for the king who is known to be the one after God's heart. All right? i got to say up front, too, David had his failings as a father. His household was a mess. In fact, his kingdom would endure significant turmoil, all of Israel suffering as there was division that would arise from his very household. Now, I think it's important that we just take a time out for a second. Do you realize the significance of this? David is, on one hand, a guy that's got a lot good going for him, a man after God's own heart. And at the other hand, he's a murderer, he's an adulterer. (laughs) He's a a mess of a, a, a father. Whoa, what gives? How can both of these be true? You know, in his life is a picture that God's grace and his mercies are greater and more triumphant than our sins. And I think a few of you, maybe all of us, would be blessed to remind ourselves of that this morning. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're trusting in the mercy that he alone provides, then your sins and your past failings don't have the ultimate word on defining who you are. I I just think that's worthy of a shout-out here this morning as we think about David. But in the end, our goal here isn't so much to review uh, the entirety of his life. It's to think about that promise, right? So let's get down to that. We've already read the text from uh, 2 Chronicles 17 that relates to this, and we'll get back to that. There's three parts to this promise. And so we're going to talk about it in three parts, and, and uh, we'll, we'll guide us through some of that scripture here. Again, First Chronicles 17, uh, verse 11. From this, we're going to see that the first part of this is that God is going to promise an eternal king will come from David all right and so as, as we look at this I, i'm mindful of the last couple of weeks i've been leaving the yeah, online uh, listeners uh in the dark when, I, when we put up our scriptures unless they're watching the the video so i'm, I'm going to go ahead and read that when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers i will raise up your offspring after you one of your own sons and i will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for me and i will establish his throne forever i will be to him a father and he shall be to, him, or to me a son. And so we look at that. I will not take away my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who is before you, but I will confirm it in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. All right? Now, that's not just kind of like poetic language here, folks. We, we need to recognize if we, if we understand what's being promised here properly... God is promising something longer than a human dynasty. Now, at its surface level, I don't know that David understood all of this at all times, but it surely would have been an encouragement to him up front. He'd already seen that he was the successor of a king who had failed miserably. David will have the assurance that his family line uh, will continue on. Well, that's good news. Solomon, his son, uh, will indeed, uh, you know, take the throne after him. That's good news, all right? Um, But I think it's more than that. And what we've got to recognize in the midst of this is David's heart, he did have that heart of worship. And I think that's part of why he's considered a man after God's own heart. David had this longing to build a house, a a place of permanent worship, a, a permanent temple for God. They had been worshiping in a tabernacle, which is kind of a fancy tent, right? And so as this goes on, David's expressing this longing to build God a house. The prophet Nathan catches wind of it and says, good idea. But the Lord later comes back to Nathan and says, not so fast. I'm going to do something different. I don't want David to build me a house, God will say. The truth is, David had too much blood on his hands. He'd seen too much violence from his act of leading the nation in war. God's holy house wouldn't be built by a man of war. Good news for David. His longing will be fulfilled in his son Solomon, who will build the temple after him. But God says something rather profound in saying, instead of David building me a house, I'm going to build him a house. And again, this is something greater than seeing his dynasty last a little longer, all right? At the heart of this, there's going to be a work uh, that God will do, and this will involve a king that will sit on the throne forever, all right? Yeah, spoiler alert, that's going to be Jesus. We'll get to that uh, in a bit, all right? Now, as we think about this, there's a second important point about this promise, and it's rather rather. interconnected, but this won't just be a king. This this king will be a Messiah, or if you want to translate that, that's a deliverer. That's an interesting thing, uh, because if they were already on the throne to begin with in an unbroken succession of kings, why would they need a deliverer? More on that later. But clearly, that part of the promise, the idea of Messiah or deliverer, didn't come in the First Chronicles passage that we just read. That will be elaborated on more fully by the prophets that will follow David, all right? Some of the prophets have written at great length about this messianic hope, this idea of a deliverer of God's people, and this again, after their kingdom had already been established, Isaiah is one of the more popular uh, you know, prophecies, uh, Isaiah chapter nine, I should say. Uh, a number of us would be familiar with this passage, even uh, if we didn't feel confident of that ahead of time. I'm gonna read it, you're gonna, you're gonna recognize, many of you, uh, the passage, uh, Isaiah chapter nine, starting in verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There are numerous other passages all pointing to a future time when Israel will need deliverance. This Messiah will establish both that deliverance and the peace that had been lacking. This is pretty profound. And I think it's pretty clear if you've been following uh, this, you know, uh, verse or these verses, there is so much language of government and kingdom involved here. So very, very profound. So we've got the idea of an eternal king who will be a deliverer. And that deliverer idea will take on a greater significance in the days of Jesus as they are occupied by Roman authority. But uh, more on that in a moment. Our final idea, and this is an important one, this promise is established unconditionally. That's going to be really, really important. I'm going to show you that here in just a second. But the unconditional nature of this hope, I would say, would just be wrapped up in the passage we've already read earlier from 1 Chronicles 17. I will not take my steadfast love from him. That is an unconditional statement, folks. Some of you, uh, certainly as parents, you know that love you have for your kids. You say, hey, uh, through it all, whatever decisions are made, I will not stop loving you. Even on a human level, we get that. How much more profound this language is with God who's saying, hey, I will treat this king like a son of my own, and I will keep this promise alive, right? It will be my work. I will confirm him in my house, in my kingdom forever. So, we need to recognize that even though this is going to be a promise given to David that his sons will reign after him, this is ultimately a a doing that God will be at the helm of. Now, let me explain to you in short why that was so significant. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a snapshot of the entirety of the kingdoms of biblical Israel in a, maybe a minute or two, right? This is, I mean, pfft, whirlwind, right? So here, we'll simplify it. But Solomon, the very next king after David, oh, he starts so well. He's got more wisdom than any other king that's ever ruled this earth. Pretty profound, and yet in the end, Something of his appetites for things other than God's promises will take root, all right? He will have a, a, a particular lustful zeal for foreign wives, and he'll have a thousand wives, it is said. And I think something of the love of these foreign women and, more importantly, his idolatrous worship of their gods coming from foreign nations will be his undoing. So right out of the chute, we've got the first king following David. Yeah, he built the temple. Yeah, he did so much good. And yet his heart will grow cold. And you know, this pattern is just going to be amplified because of his disobedience, we will see a fracturing of the, the country of Israel or the, God's people, right? A fracturing into two separate kingdoms, north and south, Let me just tell you up front, it doesn't go well for either. The one that broke off and kind of started their own religion, uh, the kingdom of Israel, the blue in the north here, they're going to have 19 kings. Zero of them will be faithful, even remotely faithful to God. Utter failure. They will end in exile But it doesn't go a lot better for Judah who still had the temple and still had something more of God's promises, right? Out of the 19 kings there, and if we're being accurate, one queen as well, only eight of them will actually have some semblance of obedience to God. I put an asterisk in there because, gosh, the pattern is something not too encouraging. Most of those eight kings started out well. And then when success came and things got rolling good, their hearts turned from God. Ouch. It's a continual reminder to me. I don't want to just start my faith well. I want to finish strong, okay? Uh, 19 and 8, Israel is going to end in exile too because, again, in the end, they will exchange their love and their worship of God for the worship of the nations around them, false gods, idols, and... All of this to say, if this promise is a promise that is to be fulfilled because of their obedience, hey, this summary shows it all. The promise is going to die, dead on arrival, not a chance. But let's come back and remember the significance of this. This eternal king, this deliverer, would be installed on a forever throne, not because of man's obedience but because of God's. And I think that's important for us to recognize that it's unconditional. Well, let's go ahead and turn to the question of how this ends up being fulfilled in Jesus, right? Because like the previous two, Jesus is the one that this promise ultimately refers to. And as we think through this, there's, there's a few neat things from the New Testament jesus is the son of david okay this idea is repeated just numerous times over and over all right jesus is the son of david in fact no time is wasted in the gospels the very first book of the first gospel matthew is going to emphasize this very point the book of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham that idea of son of david that's like putting bold print, asterisk, underline, kind of shouting out, hey, Israel, here is the one that fulfills God's promise to David. That's what's meant by the son of David, all right? And so Matthew just wastes no time. This is the very first verse of his gospel. Notice also, he goes ahead in the same move and says, oh, that one that's the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham, He's also the promise fulfilled to, uh, I'm sorry, both to Abraham and to David, okay, in one move. And later on, it'll be clear that he also fulfilled the promise to Moses. So, Jesus is the son of David. This is repeated over and over and over. Additionally, we see this uh, in some other passages. Luke Uh, Chapter 1, a number of you are familiar with this passage. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, this is talking to Mary, and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom. There will be no end. I hope you can see the clear language of God's promise to David all over this, that the fingerprints of it are everywhere. It's not subtle, it's shouting out, right? And so that's Luke chapter one. Let's move to another idea because Jesus will teach at length. Keep your eyes on this as you read the gospels the next time. So many passages he'll speak about the kingdom of God is like or the kingdom of heaven is like. Those are, those are references, references to him uh, being the king that will someday uh, to rule as, as the one that fulfilled the promise to David. But the crowds picked this up well enough, all right? It says in Mark chapter two, looking at the 19th verse, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. In other words, here is our Messiah deliverer. He's here. And they were jubilant. He's going to be the one that will overthrow Rome. Only he didn't. And their hopes were dashed. Oftentimes the promise takes on a little different nuance than what we're first expecting because he would be crucified. And what was his crime? The king. Of the Jews. Here again, we've got that kingly language, right? But they saw his death as a maybe a, a failure to complete the promise. Little did they know that his death and his resurrection would show that he is indeed the deliverer, and he is a conquering king, conquering the curse on this earth, conquering and reversing the curse of sin and death. So what a mighty deliverer he is. So son of David, so important, all right? Now, a second thing is that he's going to be the king of the nations. It's not just a king over Israel, and perhaps the straightest the, the shot to seeing this is found in the book of Revelation. And it's kind of neat. I didn't pick the songs this morning, but we sang the Revelation song this morning, right? King Jesus on his throne there. Well, Revelation 7, starting in verse 9, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, stand before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a picture. This is a picture for the longings in our hearts being fulfilled of the things that are wrong and corrupt and not as they should be in this world being made right. And how timely as we think about racial uh, you know, uh, unity to recognize this is a people group, and and I think uh, Logan hit on this before in his prayer. A people group united together in glad-hearted adoration, at peace with one another, because they are being led by the King they adore. Wow! Only Christ could do this. So He is the promised King of the nations. Well, let's get to kind of thinking through this. Uh, We know he's an eternal king, and we know uh, that he is a deliverer. We know it's an unconditional promise. We know he's the son of David. We know he will be the king of the nations. But now my question is, so what difference does this make to you and me as we head out today? Well, I'm glad you asked, okay? So here we are all right? I hope it's been pretty obvious to see the hope of, you know, what it would look like to see everything wrong in this world be uh, made right. That, that in itself should speak volumes, but I want to say very clear that as Christ will return to establish his kingdom ruling among the nations, there's a, a couple of things we want to, you know, just recognize, and perhaps those would be best kind of highlighted as we think about one of his teachings on the kingdom. And I think somehow I missed that here. I don't have that one in there. I will describe it. It's the pearl of great price. If you're not familiar with the parable of the pearl of great price, it's a combination of two separate but pretty much similar teachings. It's on one hand, a man looking for fine pearls finds the greatest pearl that he'd ever imagined. And in that, uh, he ends up selling everything he has to go after that one prized pearl. And the other related passage would be simply this, that somebody stumbled across uh, this great treasure in a field quickly realized the value that was there and sold everything that he had in order to acquire that field recognizing that the treasure in it was worth more than anything else he had now folks i i want to leave us with that because that's jesus comparison to the kingdom of heaven and i think that the clear call there is a question uh, of whether we treasure christ whether we treasure him as king because in the parable if you saw the value of what was before you, there was no mistake about the need to give up everything to go get it. And I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to rightly value not only the king, but the kingdom that this king will lead. And this is an important thing. I think there's a lot of misconceptions people have about the idea of heaven. And I don't want to offend anybody here this morning but I'm not going to beat around the bush either. There's a lot of people that think of heaven as some great resort. And maybe you could catch up with some lost loved ones. Maybe you could get in a round or two of golf. If Jesus shows up, good, that's great. We'll fit him in somewhere in the day. If he doesn't, it's all right. Hey, it's paradise, right? I mean, (laughs) what more could a man want? And see, the problem with that kind of a viewpoint is it misses the entire point. The grand prize of heaven, ladies and gentlemen, is Jesus himself. The grand prize is being not only in the kingdom, but before the king, being at his service, being part of what he's doing, living with him for eternity. There is life to be had in the future. And this kingdom, it says of Christ, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. My question is, do we treasure him accordingly? And let's just be honest, no one in this room treasures him perfectly. But I'm I'm talking specifically now to those that would call themselves followers of Christ. Right, because as we ask yourself, do you treasure him? I want to say, America's government? I love a good democracy, but you know what? A democracy is poor preparation for kingdom living. If we don't like the president, I'm saying generically the president here. I don't care if you're talking Republican or Democrat. You don't like the president? You can make your dislike known in a myriad of ways and you can vow to get somebody else elected the next go-around. Hmm, going to get him out of office. Maybe we can even impeach him. Isn't that our hearts? Folks, Christ isn't coming to set up a democracy. Make no mistake about it. He's not taking counsel on how he should lead. There are no checks and balances on his rule. Good news is he rules perfectly. He doesn't need any. Good news is he's righteous in everything he does. We haven't seen a leader like that. That's what we're made for. That's what we long for. But I say that because if you're a follower of Christ, how quickly we want to call the shots. But I want to say, hey, if you're not treasuring him in the way you're pursuing your education, if you're a student, in the way that you're pursuing your career, If you're in the working era or in the way you're pursuing your retirement, if you've been there and done that. If there isn't a recognition of Christ being king and getting ready for his kingdom coming and how you're living, then I want to lovingly exhort you to make some adjustments. You're missing the point. There's a treasure to be had. And this kingdom This kingdom isn't going to be a burdensome prospect. But make no mistake about it, it won't be comprised of people who have no heart to treasure the king. It won't be comprised of people that want to keep Jesus at arm's length to have him do their bidding instead of be his subjects. And so I say up front, we're not not good at this. We're not prepared for it. But maybe this morning, maybe it's not the overt sins that we talked about last week that, yeah, you should repent of those and get on board with this kingdom if you're doing things that you know are wrong, but maybe it's something more subtle. Maybe it's the gossip, or maybe it's the grumbling and murmuring, maybe even here amongst church Church leadership. Oh, how we can be prone to express our preferences, and how those can quickly become uh, the mountain on which we want to die on. Folks, do you not realize that if, if we're not talking about things that are not biblical, if we're not talking about things uh, that are not wrong in and of themselves, but we're just talking about personal preferences, if those become the defining line, that's divisive. That's not building kingdom. Maybe we go a step in a different direction. Maybe we say, hey, some are just saying, hey, I'm not going to get involved with relationships in the church. Too messy. Too risky. Too much time. Folks, that's not kingdom building. Kingdom building sacrifices preferences. It sacrifices time. It even sacrifices safety. Take me uh, in my context. To say, hey, I will put myself out there to be a part of what God is building. I'm preparing for the coming kingdom by advancing his kingdom here and now. That's the call if you are a follower of Christ. Yeah, it's a risk, but it's a risk worth taking. What else are you going to do? Trust yourself for something greater? Folks, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And we could go on, hey, grumbling, gossip, uh, relationships, maybe you're just too darn busy, right? What are you willing to reprioritize to be a part of building God's kingdom? Hey, we could go on and on and on. Before we finish, though, I want to be especially mindful that it's possible that there are some in this room that would say, just honestly, I haven't yet put my trust in Christ. Uh, I'm not at that point where I've, uh, you know, even recognized uh, that need. I wanna make very clear to you that John makes very clear that in order to be a part of the kingdom of God, one must be born again. That's a call to stop trusting in your own self-efforts to make yourself right with God and to bend your knee before the king, the coming king, and say, I need you to do for me what I can't do on my own. I trust your mercy and your forgiveness to cover my sins. So, folks, this morning, whether you've never made that profession or whether you're just somebody that needs to make some adjustments, I want you to recognize that the context of everything I've talked about is surrounded by the loving mercy of God. We've seen that again and again, his mercy. Grace and mercy is greater than our sin. Would you close with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for the hope of a kingdom that is coming, a kingdom that is not marred by corruption or imperfections or limitations, but a kingdom that will be perfect and right and good in every way. Would you open our eyes afresh this morning? Stir us to live for something greater than what's right before us. Stir us to live for something greater than the headlines or our calendars. God, would you put in us a holy heart to pursue your kingdom, to bend our knees in humble submission to you, that increasingly, even in this lifetime, you would be recognized by us as king, so that when you return, Lord, that's not a a foreign concept. We'd just be ready. We'd be ready with glad adoration to bow before you. And we just give you praise. I just want to pray for your grace to each one this morning as we think about these things, that your Holy Spirit work in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.